Let's pray together. Our gracious God, we thank you that you have gathered us under your word. Even as Sibi prayed before, you are the God who confronts us and then comforts us as well. You convict us and then invite us. You are the God with whom we are distanced because of our sin, but who has come near because of your grace and love. We give you thanks that that is the manner of God that you are, that you are so gracious and faithful and desiring that we ought to know you, that you have given us your holy word and given us time under your word so that we might see us for who we are, see you for who you are, and be drawn to you. Come do that by your Holy Spirit, to the glory of God. In the name of Christ we pray. Amen. Okay, when you come to Matthew 6, which is the passage we're in, so if you have your Bibles, you can leave them open to the passage Kurt just read to us. When you come to Matthew 6, you're in a section of teaching called the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount is this lengthy discourse that Jesus has with a number of teachings, and it goes from chapter 5, 6, and 7. So in 6, where we are this week, you're right in the thick of it, right in the heart of it, right in the middle of Jesus' teaching. And in chapters 5, 6, and 7, what Jesus is doing is he's beginning to teach what life in his kingdom looks like. So if you're a disciple who belongs to Jesus, Jesus is going to try and tell you this is what life in his kingdom looks like. So he's trying to say, if you are a disciple, if you belong to me, if you're a citizen of Jesus' kingdom, this is what it means to live life in Jesus' kingdom. That you no longer belong to the pattern, the principles, the ways of the world. You now follow a different king. You're under a different kingdom. And the rules, the ways, the values, the patterns, the principles of Jesus' kingdom is far different than the kingdom and the world that we belong to. In every way, Jesus in 5, 6, and 7 is going to say his values cut against the grain of the world in which we live, in sort of the the culture and the ways of thinking that we have traditionally. For example, the world would say that if you're poor, if you're meek, if you're persecuted, you are to be pitied above all. Jesus would say, you are blessed. The world would say, if someone harms you, you settle the score. You retaliate. You resist. Jesus would say, you turn the cheek. You go the extra mile. You pray for those who persecute you. The world would say, and we with it would say, you save as much as you can now so that you will have plenty at the end of your life. Jesus would say, you give as much as you can now so that you will have plenty for eternal life. When you read chapters 5, 6, and 7, when you read Jesus' teaching on the Sermon on the Mount, they are not pithy platitudes to put up on a plaque or to put on a t-shirt or on a nice coffee mug. They cut against the grain of everything you and I think to be normal. His teachings go against everything we think is normal. As you read 5, 6, and 7, you almost feel like everything Jesus is saying is upside down. Or then you begin to consider, maybe we're the ones who are upside down, and Jesus is turning everything right side up. And in 5, 6, and 7, Jesus is going to say some things that sound to us extreme, and in order to get that point across to us, he'll say them in extreme and sometimes exaggerated ways. Let me say that again. 5, 6, and 7 is a bit tricky to interpret because Jesus is trying to communicate some extreme things to us, and in doing so, he'll say them in extreme and exaggerated ways. For example, when he's teaching on lust, he says, if a man's eye causes him to sin, he ought to gouge it out, 
And if his hand causes him to sin, he ought to lop it off. Now, if you read that in an overly wooden and rigid way, ignoring the intent of what Jesus means, we would think that the Christian church would be filled with one-eyed men and women and disabled folk. And then we'd go, no, what Jesus is saying is, listen, Jesus wants you to be radical about how you amputate sin out of your life. Jesus doesn't want you to tinker with sin and toy with sin and manage sin and get your sin under control. Jesus wants you to be radical about the way you amputate sin out of your life. Or Jesus will talk about giving. In Matthew 6, the passage we're going to look at in verses 2 to 4, he'll talk about giving and he'll say, listen, when you give, make sure that your left hand does not know what your right hand gives. Now again, if you read that in an overly wooden way, ignoring the intent Jesus means, you're going to try and somehow give with this hand without this And you go, no, that's not it. That's not what Jesus means. What he's trying to say is, when you do something good, you ought to do it in a way that is not bringing attention to yourself. In that passage, he'll say, the religious leaders love to blow a trumpet before they give. So they go, do-do-do-do, and then they, they give. I'm not good at sound effects, so that wasn't a good trumpet, but... <laughs> Right? They want everyone to know before they put something in the basket. And Jesus is saying, don't let your giving be that way. When your right hand gives, let it be so that your left hand doesn't even know about it. Now that kind of understanding will be important for us as we consider what Jesus has to say about prayer. Because in chapter 6, in verses 5 and following, you find Jesus teaching on prayer. When you get to 6... Here's what Jesus is doing. Jesus is basically saying, if the gospel, the good news of Jesus, has found its way into your heart, then that is necessarily going to produce some actions. Right? If this faith has really found its way into your heart, it's going to be exhibited in certain ways. And in 6, he comes up with three different religious things that people will do if the gospel found its way into their heart. In 2 to 4, he'll talk about giving. In 16 to 18, he'll talk about fasting. And in our passage, 5 and following, he'll talk about prayer. Right? The thought is simply this, that if Jesus has really found his way into your heart, if the Gospels become true, then you, in your poverty, who was given the free gift of salvation, you will find yourself freely giving to those who are in poverty just as you were freely given And so Jesus anticipates that giving will be one of the evidences that the gospel has found its way into your heart. You were freely given, though you were poor and needy, and so of course you're going to be the kind that freely give to those who are poor and needy. Or Jesus will assume that if God has become the most valuable treasure of your soul and your life, and there is nothing that you have greater than God, nothing that you desire more than God, you would forego all things for God, then one of the practices he assumes would be a part of your life is you'd be willing to forego even of food itself to have more of God. So he assumes fasting would become some part of the rhythm of your life. And he assumes likewise that prayer would become a part of your life. And and what he's trying to do in chapter 6 is, when these things are practiced by you, how ought you to practice them? How are you to do the things that you do because of what Jesus has done in your heart? And today we want to consider specifically verses 5 and following and Jesus talking about prayer. We're continuing in our consideration of prayer and asking God to continue maturing us in prayer and hear what Jesus has to say to us 
about prayer. Now, before we look at verse 5, I just want to start at verse 1 for one second. Look at 6 verse 1. 6 verse 1 is sort of a heading for this entire section. And everything Jesus has to say about each of these practices, 6 verse 1 is sort of the overarching theme for them all. He says this, Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Let the words of Jesus sit on you again. Let them be what they were for His first hearers. A good warning, a good caution to people like you and me who would commit ourselves to disciplines like prayer. He says again, Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Jesus saying, look, when you do these things that you can anticipate will be a part of the life of a Christian, like giving, like fasting, like praying, beware of the tendency in your heart, of the temptation in your heart to do them so that you might be seen by others. For if that is the case, you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. And again here, Jesus' teaching is sort of cutting against the grain of the pattern and principles and values and ways of our world. Because our world would say, if you're going to do something good, you climb up to the rooftop and shout about it as loud as you can so everyone will know. You get your PR guy, you hold a press conference, and you let everyone know of your good deeds so everyone will be able to say, man, that guy is awesome. And Jesus says, not so in my kingdom. For the citizens of my kingdom, for the disciples who belong to me, they live their life for an audience of one. That's how they live. They do all that they do for an audience of one. And Jesus takes this general principle in 6 verse 1 and begins to apply it specifically to prayer in 6 verse 5 and following. So look there. And in 6 verse 5 and following, I want to show you two things that Jesus teaches us about prayer. Two things that citizens of Jesus' kingdom who live according to the patterns of His kingdom and the principles of His world would know about prayer. Here's the first one. True prayer is not a public performance, but a private practice. True prayer is not a public performance, but a private practice. Listen to what Jesus says. Look with me. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. The first thing I would have you hear is true prayer is not a public performance, but a private practice. What Jesus does here is he begins by showing you what prayer is not before he tells you what prayer is. He tells you what you ought not to do before he moves to tell you what you ought to do. So here's the first thing he says that prayer is not. Prayer is not a public performance. Look again for what he says. When you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and the street corners that they may be seen by others. So he says, when you pray, you're not to pray like the hypocrites. Who are the hypocrites? Now, if you're new to the Bible, if you're new to Christianity, it might surprise you to know that Jesus' ongoing regular fight 
His major beef is always not with the sinners, the tax collectors, the drunkards, or the prostitutes. It's always with people like you and me, the religious folks, the spiritual folks, the kind of folks you would find gathered for worship. They're the ones that are always at odds with Jesus. And Jesus calls them hypocrites. Now, when we think of hypocrites, we usually think of someone who says something out loud, but then when no one is watching, does something different. That's not how these guys are hypocrites. So they're not, for example, saying you shouldn't get drunk, but in the private realm, getting trashed. That's not them. What they are doing is they are saying all that they do is about God, when really it's all about them. That's the way that they're hypocritical. All their religion and all that they do is done to be seen by people. It's done not for God. It's done to have a good reputation. And Jesus calls them hypocrites. And this hypocrisy of their religion is particularly seen when they pray. Because when they pray, it's, it's showtime, right? He says they love to go and stand up and pray in the synagogue. So the synagogue was for the Jews what church is for you this morning. And they love to stand up because at the synagogue, it wouldn't just be them and God. There'd be a room full of people, 20, 50, 60, 100 people. And they, man, they come alive there. They shine there. So that by the time they're finished praying, everybody who's gathered would go, wow, what a prayer, right? Man, he's so spiritual. He's so holy. And everyone would applaud for them and everyone would praise them. And they love hearing the whispers of people talk about how good and holy they are. He says they come alive when they're in the synagogue or when they're in the street corner. So what Jesus is saying is, in that day, in that culture, Jewish people had specified times of prayer. So there were certain times throughout the day when you had to pray. No matter what you were doing, you would stop what you were doing and you would pray. And what do these guys do? They sort of time it so that they're crossing a busy intersection right at the time of prayer. And what do you know? They have to stop where everyone's watching to pray. The kind that would literally time themselves so that they'd happen to be crossing a busy street corner. Four lanes of traffic, everyone to look at them. And you're sort of in the market, you know, trying to haggle over a pound of beef. And all of a sudden you hear this man, Oh God, who owns the cattle on a thousand hills. <clears throat> like me, praying. And all of a sudden everyone in the market begins to look at this guy. And again the whispers. He's so holy. He's so spiritual. And you feel like a loser with your pound of beef. And this guy is praying. They love to stand up in the synagogues and at the street corners. And they love to pray. Here's what they're after. Human applause. Human approval. Human acceptance. Their prayers are not petitions and praises to God but rather a means to garner praise from people. They're public performances to make people think highly of them. That's what they're after. And Jesus says, that's exactly what they'll get. But that's all they'll get. 
Hear that again. Jesus says, truly I say to you, they have received their reward. What's Jesus saying? Jesus is saying, they are doing all this stuff in order to be seen, and seen they will be, but that's all they're going to get. There's no reward waiting for them from God because what they did was not for God. They did this for public praise. Public praise is what they get, but they can expect nothing else. Hear that again. If you practice what you practice in order to be seen by men, by men will you be seen, but your Father in heaven will have no reward waiting for you, for you did not do this for your Father in heaven. If you do what you do in order to be seen by men, by men will you be seen, but you will have nothing waiting for you from God, for you did not do this for God. Jesus says they've been paid in full, another translation. That is, they worked hard to get public praise. Public praise is the wages they got. They've already been paid. There's no wages left for them, for they did not do this for the Father who is in heaven. And so what they've done is they've traded eternal rewards from their Father in heaven for temporary praise from men on earth. And your good deeds done to be highlighted and spotlighted before men will receive you the same reward, nothing more. Jesus warns here that they've already received their reward. Now, here's what I want to suggest. Let's for a second leave the world of 2,000 years ago and step into the present day and how this connects to us. Because I would say some of you know what this is like all too well. If you grew up like me, and many of you did, around church, going to church, around religion, near spiritual people, you have undoubtedly felt the immense pressure to be spiritually impressive. You have undoubtedly felt the immense pressure to look like you are pious and perfect and holy and righteous. You have felt the immense pressure to perform. If you grew up going to church like I did, and I know this world so well, of knowing what it's like, the burden of trying to feel like you've got to constantly perform. The weird thing is, the gospel we believe is constantly telling us Jesus came into the world to save broken, bad people. And yet we spent all our time and our efforts and energy trying to convince everyone we were very good. Did you hear that again? The gospel is that Jesus came to save very bad people. That's the only people Jesus gets involved with. And yet we spent all our time, our efforts and our energy, somehow trying to convince everyone we were so very good. And you felt the weight of trying to perform, of trying to find an identity by being the religious guy. I have a buddy who jokes with me that when he was growing up, some of his friends were the good-looking type, and so they got all the, go- the girls. Some of his friends were the smart type, so they were known for their academics. And so he was left being the religious type, right? And you know what that's like. I know what that's like. I wasn't good-looking. I wasn't good in sports. So I became the religious guy, and I found my identity there. And I thrived there. And all of it was this burden to to come off looking right to people. 
And Jesus, the tragedy would be, this is the, the tragedy that Jesus warns against, if you're still there now, if even you come to a place like this and among a people like us and you're at Seven Mile Road and you still feel the need to perform, like you're still always putting on a show, and that pressure that you'll feel will flush itself out in, in many ways, one of them will be in prayer. Because in prayer, you will constantly drift to performing publicly. That's what prayer will become for you. Prayer has this way in the hearts of sinners like us of drifting from being God-centered to being man-centered. From drifting to being all about God to being all about us. And, And it expresses itself in two ways. Let me say this quickly. Some of you pray to be impressive. Some of you don't pray because you're afraid you won't be impressive. But both extremes find its root in the same heart problem. Can I say that again? Some of you will pray publicly in order to be impressive. Some of you will never utter a prayer in public because you're afraid you won't be impressive. Both find its root with the same heart. This is what's wonderful about the Bible and about Christianity and about this faith. It, it cuts through and says, it externally, this looks very different. But internally, it's the same heart problem, which is you are far more convinced and concerned about people than you are about God. Some of you need to put on a show. Some of you are scared to death. And both of it comes from a heart that thinks more about people than it does about God. It's, it's two different expressions born from the same heart. And the gospel alone is the cure. Let me say that again. For both, the gospel alone is the cure. Because the gospel comes to the guy who's always putting on a show and says, Brother, can I tell you good news? Jesus came into the world. And he lived an impressive life. And he died for your sins. And now by repentance and faith... His righteousness has come on you and you are impressive to God because of Jesus. So you don't got to be the spotlight anymore. You don't have to shine anymore. You're already accepted, approved, applauded by God. You're impressive to Him through Jesus. And the gospel comes to the one who's hiding and afraid and says, Brother, can I tell you good news? You don't have to be afraid of sounding impressive when you pray. Jesus came into the world and he lived an impressive life for you and he died and when you repented and believed in him, his righteousness came to you and now you are considered impressive to God because of Jesus. So you don't have to be. And the gospel sets the proud and the fearful free and says prayer is not a public performance. You are already accepted and loved and approved of by God. You do not need to be impressive in prayer. You do not need to be afraid in prayer. And if you get that, then you're ready to hear what Jesus says prayer is. Prayer is not a public performance. Instead, he says, it's a private practice. Listen to what he says next. He says, but when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret. Now again, in the beginning we said we've got to balance Jesus' words so that we don't take them beyond His intent. Is Jesus in saying that when we pray, we shouldn't do them to be publicly seen? 
that we should do them in our rooms, with the door shut, in secret. In saying this, is Jesus against public corporate prayer? Is Jesus against us gathering together for prayer? No. I want you to hear that. Jesus prays publicly. Next week we'll consider why Christians, believers, ought to pray together corporately in the body. But what Jesus is saying is, it's not wrong to be seen praying. It is wrong to be praying in order to be seen. Right? Let me say that again. It's not wrong to be seen praying. It is wrong to pray in order to be seen. And to counter that and correct that, Jesus says, when you pray, here's what I want you to do. Go to your room, shut the door, and pray to your Father in secret. Again, Jesus is not specifying the only place where prayer can happen. Many of them would not have had a private room that they could go off to pray for. But what he is saying is, let your prayer be the kind that is hidden and secret. Rather than people being the reason that you pray, let it be that you go to your Father who is in secret and pray to your Father there who meets you in secret. Where no one is, He is. And where no one sees, He sees. And even as He is hidden, right? Can you see God? You cannot. So let your prayers for now be hidden. Let His nature drive your prayer life. He is presently hidden, so let your prayers be as well. So that on the day when He is visible your rewards will be as well. He is on this day hidden, so let your prayer life be as well, so that on that day when He is visible, your rewards for prayer will be as well. In this secret place, and, and that's a question to ask you, is the only time you pray with people in public, or do you have a prayer life that is private and hidden? Do you meet with God in secret? so that he who sees you in secret might reward you one day openly and visibly. There's a second thing that Jesus wants to teach about prayer, and then we'll stop. The first thing is that prayer is not a public performance, but a private practice. Here's the second thing that I want you to hear. The power of prayer is not in us who pray, but in God who hears. The second thing that Jesus teaches here is that the power of prayer is not in us who pray, but in God who hears. That the power of prayer is not in your tongue that composes words, but in God's ears who hears them. That your prayer is effective and reaches heaven not because you compose them perfectly, but because God is generous and gracious and willing to hear them. Here's what he says. Listen to the next part. When you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. When you pray, do not heap up empty phrases like the Gentiles do, for they think they will be heard for their many words. Here's what Jesus is saying. If the pious religious folks messed up in prayer because they were constantly focused on people, well then everyone else, the Gentiles, the rest of the people who were not part of God's community, they messed up in prayer as well. Because if you weren't a part of God's community, they were on the outside. They didn't really know God. And so when it came to prayer, they were sort of winging it, doing what made sense to them. And here's what makes sense. If you don't know who God is, if you don't really know what God is like, but you're kind of thinking there might be a God out there, what makes sense to you about prayer is, if I pray long enough and say it well enough, maybe I'll catch His attention. 
The Gentiles who didn't really know who God was or what he was like figured, if I'm going to get the attention of a divine being out there, I better pray many words and I better pray them well. Right? Maybe you feel that way. That if you're going to get God's attention, if somehow you're going to get God's attention to act for you, to work for you, to do something for you, you better string together a long and good prayer. He said the Gentiles were wrong. They erred in thinking that by heaping up many phrases, praying for a very long time, they would somehow get God to act for them. And maybe you're there. Maybe you think prayer is this complicated formula. And if you can string together just the right words with the right pauses for the right time, God might listen. Let me give you one example from the scriptures of what Jesus is talking about here. In 1 Kings 18, there's this story of the, the prophets of this false god named Baal in a contest with a prophet of God named Elijah. If you've read the scriptures, you remember the story. There's the people of Israel who worship God, but nobody's worshiping him anymore except for this one prophet named Elijah. And then there's this false god named Baal, and the two come together in a contest. And here's the contest. They're going to set up two altars. They're both going to cry out to their gods, or for Yahweh, for Elijah, to his God. And the first one who's going to come down, send down fire, and consume this sacrifice on this altar wins. So Elijah, being a gentleman, says, you guys go first, and so the prophets of Baal go. 450 of them, Elijah's by himself. And if you read the story, it's almost comical. They start at morning. And even by noontime, they're not done praying. And they pray many words, and they say many incantations, and they string together just the right words for a really long time, because they figure, if there's a God up there, well, six hours of prayer and many words is going to get his attention. And Elijah is sort of mocking them the whole time. It's very comical if you read it. He literally says to them, maybe your God is on the can. Maybe he's relieving himself. Maybe he's taking a nap. Maybe he's on a journey. Cry out louder. And so they do. They start grabbing knives and they cut themselves and they let the blood flow. And they're screaming out, whooping and hollering, hoping that six hours of prayer and many words will get God's attention. And when they're done, when they're exhausted and all the blood has drained out, it's Elijah's turn. And if you read the story, he's got one prayer that, that I tried saying it. It might take 15 to 20 seconds to say. They've prayed for six hours or so. He prays for 20 seconds. And fire comes down and lights up that sacrifice and everybody believes. And if that story teaches anything, it's what Jesus is saying here is, listen, the power was not that Elijah was better than those prophets, but that God was better than Baal. That the true God, the power of prayer, is not in your many words, but in God who hears. Fifteen seconds of prayer to the true God is better than six hours of mindless, babbling repetition to some divine being that you hope you can win his favor if you're impressive enough. Fifteen seconds to the true God. To a God who you know is for you and loves you and has his ear inclined towards you. 
is better than hours upon hours of mindless babbling, hoping to somehow gain God's attention. Do not heap up empty phrases and vain repetition, hoping that through your many words and your long-windedness, God would listen to you. It ought to be an encouragement to you to know God is fine with your short but honest and simple prayers. This passage ends with Jesus teaching them a model of prayer called the Lord's Prayer. Say it. It'll take you all of 30 seconds. What a gracious God you have that such a simple and short prayer would be acceptable to God. Because the power of prayer is not in us who pray, but in God who hears. And so here's what I want you to hear about prayer. The gospel can set you free. You're already accepted. You don't have to be impressive. And the gospel likewise comes and says, you don't have to dance around trying to gain his attention. You already have it. He loved you and sent Jesus for you. You are eternally on his mind. I want you to hear that. You don't have to through long-windedness, through many words, through elaborate complex prayers, try to gain his attention. You already have it. Again, balance this. Is Jesus against prayer that takes a while? No. Jesus prayed all night before he chose his disciples. Is he against prayer that says the same words over and again? No. In Gethsemane it says he prayed the same thing three times. But is Jesus against mindless, vain babbling that thinks you can win his attention if you're long enough and good enough? Yes. Because prayer is simple to a God who is already for you. You've never fallen off his radar. He's never missed you. He's never forgotten about you. He's never disregarded you. And so since you're always present on his mind, you can speak to your father. That's what he says. Don't be like the Gentiles. For your Father knows what you need before you even ask it. So when you go to Him, you know this Father has not forgotten about me. He knows me. He knows what I need. And I can go confidently to Him. Prayer is not a public performance. It's a private practice. Meet God in secret, for in secret He will reward you. And prayer is not having its power in us, but in God who hears. And so then Jesus said, when you pray, pray a simple prayer like this. And I would commend it to you. Consider it. Model your own prayers even after it. He says, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Honest, simple, acceptable to God, and impressive because you prayed in Jesus' name. Let's pray together. God, the Father, we ask that you would send your Holy Spirit to come and apply your word to us. Teach us from your word, instruct us throughout the week. Give us some truth that we can lock on to and that it might transform us even this day and going forward. We do thank you for the good news of Jesus Christ. 
We do not have to be impressive. Jesus was impressive for us. We don't have to put on a show. We don't have to be the center or the spotlight on us. We don't have to have other people think well of us. God thinks very highly of Jesus, and we now have the righteousness of Jesus. We have the qualifications of Jesus as we stand before you. We who are in no way qualified have every merit in Christ, and we approach you in him. And we are not trying through many words to gain your attention. We already have it. It is eternally ours. We have a Father who is for us, who knows our needs before we even ask of it. Lord, we ask you, like the disciples, teach us to pray even better this week. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.